0: 21 and 22 and um, uh, I've been getting jealous about this I'm hearing that the students have been studying this through the summer and every time I was like ah I want to study that too and so I gave into the pressure and I said all right we're all going to look at these things together Um, so Revelation 21 if you're using the blue Bible uh, it's on page 1041 in that blue Bible again it's the second to last in the last chapter And I'm going to read a a good number of verses from uh, these last two chapters. I'm going to start in Revelation 21, read verses 1 through 8, and then tell you what we're going next. So beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Jump down to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Dear God, the truths in this text, what we see here of Act 5, of the great five-act play of the entire universe that you have been writing and orchestrating throughout time, we, we see glimpses of things that we do not fully understand. But just the, the glimpses that we see are, they are hints, they're clues, they're foretastes of a life, of, of an ending that's also an eternal beginning that is beautiful. So I pray that we could see and understand that today and live now in this act, act four, before the final act, accordingly. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So our world is obsessed with story right now. One of the major like, political and cultural fights in our country over the last few years is, what's the true story of America? Is it the 1776 story of freedom, or is it the 1619 story of exploitation? Uh, as the, at the global level, are we living out the story of technological and political optimists who think that we're going to engineer our way out of aging and scarcity and death into this sort of, you know, the prosperity envisioned in Star Trek, where you just get to fly around in space and just food is just made? Or are we living in the pessimistic story as told by you know new atheist Richard Dawkins? He writes, "If there's ever a time of plenty." This very fact will automatically lead to an increase in population until the natural state of starvation and misery is restored. Our universe has no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. And against that backdrop, social media companies encourage us to write and share our own stories, making ourselves the authors and the heroes of our own lives. So this obsession with story is everywhere, and it matters, It matters if there is a true story to the whole world or to our country or to my life because that governs how we live. Because if justice is good, then it's on me to find out what justice is and to sacrifice my own good, uh, my self-interest, to take responsibility and pursue justice. But on the other hand, if there's no story except competition and decay, I don't have any responsibility beyond maximizing my happiness and the happiness of the people around me. I can do whatever I want. And if I'm my own author and hero, then I better hope I write myself a good story before I die if I can figure out what a good story even is. The scholar N.T. Wright has said that the history recorded in the Bible is like a five-act play, like a Shakespeare play, or a five-chapter story. We live right now in Act 4, which is the time between the time from when Jesus came and lived and died and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, that was Act 3, now we're in between, waiting for Act 5 to begin one day. And so, what we see in this chapter is we see the end of one chapter of our universe's history. We see the end of Act 4, and we get a taste of the beginning of Act 5, what that's going to be like. This is shown to the author, to John, by Jesus of Nazareth, who was the author of the story, who wrote himself in as a character to live and die as a human being, rise from the dead overriding the power of death itself. And so that's how the apostles knew that he had the authority to say, hey, I know what's going to happen. And so from that died, risen, and ascended state, he gave John this series of visions of what's going on in the world and what Act 4 and Act 5, that transition, are going to look like. So these visions are of a true story. And they're the visions uh, in a genre called apocalyptic literature, which doesn't mean what we usually think it means, like you know, zombie apocalypse or Mad Max or something. Uh, apocalyptic literature is literature that uses kind of this deep imagery and poetic symbols to convey truths about the world. And so when you read apocalyptic literature, it can be a little bit like walking in at the end of *Return of the King*, the third *Lord of the Rings* movie. And there's like a little guy in a volcano holding a ring, and another little guy shouting at him. And then he turns invisible, and this like weird creature comes in. And I'm not going to spoil it if you haven't seen it. And I know there are books; the books are better. You should read the books, but let's be real: most of you have seen the movie. Um, uh, but you're like you know, the person who's watching it with you has been watching the whole time is like on the edge of their seat with their knuckles clenched. And you're like, that's significant, I guess. Um, So that's what apocalyptic literature is like. It's these deep symbols that if you don't know it, what they mean, like, I don't know. But when you do get a sense of what they mean, it unlocks everything. And so that's what we're going to look at some of today. So in these dreamlike, dreamlike symbolic ways, we see God tell us the end of the story we know. So the end of Act 4, And we get a taste of Act 5. It's the story written by the God who started the whole thing and who entered the story as a character to put right what we were writing wrong. We're going to look at three themes of the story, which highlight ways the story should define ours. So the first theme is the perfection of the creation. So in Revelation 21, verse 1, we read, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So the sea is one of those dreamlike symbols here. Earlier in the book, it symbolizes a source of evil, but the actual sea, the oceans, were made by God. So there's a new heavens and a new earth, and there's no source of evil. That's what's being conveyed here. And this is significant because Christianity teaches that the world we live in now is kind of like a body that's being ravaged by a disease. That is, what was a normal, healthy, good thing has been corrupted by an invading virus that destroys the functioning of the body and hijacks the cells to reproduce more of itself. And the hope of fighting disease isn't getting rid of the body, it's ridding the body of the disease and making the body healthy again. And so the disease we have in mind here includes suffering, death, sickness, and the deep human selfishness called sin. And so our hope isn't that God just gets rid of the world and pops us up into some kind of disembodied spirit existence like the Disney movie Soul. Um, Our hope is that at the end of Act 4, God eradicates the disease, and he doesn't just restore the body to what it was before, but he makes it a new kind of body that's immune to all those things. So if we look at Revelation 21, verse 4, it says that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God is going to personally put an end to the suffering of his people, the virus that's corrupted the good body of the creation. He's going to write out the things that cause death and sadness and pain. And this is developed in Revelation chapter 22 and those first two verses. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So this language echoes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, to the garden God plants in Genesis chapter 2. And it's picked up again in Ezekiel chapter 47, which is another instance of apocalyptic literature, which is this vision of a life-giving river flowing from the new temple. And we could spend a whole sermon just kind of tracing that through the Bible, but the main thing to see here is that the perfection of the creation isn't just the end of suffering, the end of bad things, but it's also the renewal of the creation into life-giving abundance. The water of life and the tree of life, yielding fruit and bringing healing to the nations, they are reversals of the curses of scarcity and death that have plagued the world here in Act 4. This doesn't hit us in America with the same force, because by God's grace, we live at a level of material prosperity and medical advance that has just been unheard of throughout human history. And like we saw when Spitz was sharing about what's going on in India, isn't shared by the rest of the world. But to a people who live with the everyday reality of suffering and disease and starvation and death, this is powerfully good news. The perfection of the creation is a wonderful promise. The perfection of the creation also includes reconciliation between groups of people. We just read that the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That was a Jewish idiom for the world outside of Judaism. So there were the Jews and the nations, or Jews and everyone else. A little above this passage, in Revelation 21, 24, and 26, we read, By its light, that is the light of God's glory, will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. The light of God's glory, given by the lamp of the Lamb, will show the nations how to live. And night, like the sea in this this genre, symbolizes evil, so no night means no evil. The glory and the honor of the nations, of people from all walks of life, all over the world will flow into the city for celebration and worship. And so to summarize the perfection of the creation, a new earth with no suffering, full of abundance and peace and reconciliation, it means two things for us. First, it means that when we experience the goodness of the earth, whether that's the goodness of a day in the sun and the ocean or the taste and smell of a delicious meal, or a close friendship, then we are experiencing an appetizer of the goodness of the new creation. Uh, for, for my birthday, my wife and I went on a date to Ceviche. It's the restaurant here, and we had as an appetizer chips and guacamole, which like, chips and guac, they're great. But they, they do something with this guacamole, there are like mangoes in it, and even the chips were like this freshly baked goodness. And as we ate it, I had two thoughts. One was just like, mm, this is so good. And then the second was like, if this is the appetizer, like if this is what they do with chips and guacamole, what's coming next? And so the goodness of the earth, we can enjoy it here. It's mm, it's good, but it's also a foretaste of an eternal goodness that we can just begin to imagine as a sample from what we experience here. And so when we enjoy a sunset or a concert or a deep conversation with a friend, we're tasting samples of God's creative goodness that are going to be on full, glorious display in the new creation. And the second thing it means is that when we experience suffering, so natural suffering like sickness or disease, or suffering at the hands of another person, or suffering that we cause ourselves, it's just our fault, We can see in these passages that that's all Act 4 stuff. That's all the life that we've known because we were born and we're going to live. And, you know, unless God comes back, we're going to die here in Act 4. But in Act 5, all of that's written out. All the suffering, all the death, all the decay, all the, our propensity to mess things up and to live selfishly and to cause harm to others and to ourselves. All of that's gone. And how exactly that works? I don't know. That's not in my hands. But... We know from the God who wrote the whole story, the God who already showed us that He can reverse death itself and make a new creation, that it's happening. And that lets us live in suffering when it happens with hope instead of bitterness. We don't have to spend our lives here running or hiding from hard things. The last time I preached, I mentioned a woman named Corey Tinboom. So she was a Dutch Christian woman whose family was imprisoned in Nazi concentration camps for helping and hiding Jews during World War II, during the op- occupation. Uh, my wife has been reading her autobiography, so I've been picking up pieces of it secondhand, you know. Um, and one of the most striking things in it is that Corey is put in a camp with her sister Betsy. And Corey responds to the camp, like honestly I would, any of us would respond, with, bitterness but being horrified she's desperate to kind of cling on to all the good that she can and her sister over and over just gives away the the tiny meager good things that they have their one blanket she gives to someone in greater need their little bit of food she hands off to the sick she spends this little tiny portion of life that she has um, and she even goes so far as to pity the cruel guards who are overseeing them. She is sad for their souls because she has an eternal perspective. Betsy has this vision of hope that allows her to endure the loss of things that we can't imagine losing with joy, with an ongoing life of generosity. So that's what this clear vision of the perfection of creation empowers us to do to take the good things, give thanks for them, and get excited about what's coming next, and to take the suffering and handle it with grace and with gratitude instead of bitterness. As uh, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote, suffering here, we can see it as a light and momentary affliction preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond what we can imagine. That's the first theme, the perfection of the creation. The second theme is the presence of God. Look at Revelation 21, verses 2 and 3. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. As good as the perfection of the creation is, That's not ultimately what makes it into what we would call heaven. What makes it that way, uh, all those good things aren't the most fundamental good that we're actually made for. We were made to see and enjoy the infinite goodness of God himself. Augustine of Hippo, the African theologian, summarized it when he said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Now, maybe that sounds arrogant or selfish of God uh, to make us to rest in him. I would be arrogant if I told that to my kids, like, I made you or, to do my will. You know, you'll be happiest if you just give me what I want. Um, but, uh, but imagine uh, something. this little scenario. Imagine that a little girl walks up to Simone Biles, who, if you don't know, is the most awarded female gymnast to have ever like, competed on record. Um, she's so strong that there are four gymnastic skills named after her and two of those skills have the highest difficulty rating in their categories. So she has performed moves in competition that other female gymnasts barely practice, if they even practice them. They're so intense. And so imagine this girl walks up to her and says, Miss Biles, because she's polite, um, Miss Biles, I want to learn from the best gymnast in the world. Who should I learn from? It wouldn't be arrogant for Simone Biles to say, me, because it's true. She is. When we come to the God of the Bible, We come to the being who created everything there is, quark to cosmos, tiny to huge, just by speaking. He made it all. We come to uh, the one who knows the names of every star at far distance in the universe and also knows how many hairs are on my head and on yours. The God who, like a heavenly father, gives us the gifts of life and abundance, the good things of the creation. The God who existed from eternity past as love, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in one God. And the God whose bride rejected him and sold herself into slavery to others out of spite in her sin, but who came after her, not in wrath, but to redeem her and rescue her back to himself. He alone is infinite, eternal, completely wise, completely good. All of these things have a weight or a radiance to them, which is what the Bible, kind of how it describes glory. So when God makes us with the capacity to see and enjoy glory, it would be unloving. It would be dishonest for him to make us to be ultimately satisfied in anything smaller than the greatest good, which is him. He made us for himself out of love because he is the most perfect, the most powerful, the most glorious, most loving thing there is in the universe. The best for his people is him. You and I were made with the longing to see the greatness of God face to face, to be with him with the intimacy and permanence of a great marriage. That's why the passage we just read uses that imagery to describe our union. We were made to be fully known and fully loved by the awesome creator, the perfect father, the good king, and the loving husband that God is. You know, we have lots of love songs say that we were made for each other. We literally were made to see and enjoy and be satisfied by the goodness of God. So the true beauty of the new creation, the thing that will make it not just another good thing that we'll grow tired of eventually because we're humans and we have that amazing capacity to get bored with good things, is that it will be completely filled with the glory of God. So if you look at chapter 21, verses 22 and 23... We see, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. In the new creation, you don't go somewhere to meet God. That's what the temple was for in the Old Testament. God fills the city. And symbolically, there's no lesser lights anymore because God's glory is so rich and present that it illuminates it. Like the sun illuminates our earth. And in chapter 22, verses 3 and 4, we see, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. We will worship him. We will see his face The name on the foreheads is a symbol for belonging to him and not to any other. It's kind of like a a wedding ring is a symbol of belonging to one woman or to one man. This is a hard thing to communicate to someone who isn't a Christian, who maybe hasn't had this experience. But most Christians would know what I mean when I say that in this life, we have occasional experiences of the goodness of the presence of God. That it, maybe it's during a time of prayer or a time of studying God's word or a time of worship, but there are times when God sheds his presence on us in a way that moves us to tears, that's beyond the power of just a, you know, a good concert or something like that. That God shows himself to us in his spirit. We feel him. It's something that the Apostle Paul describes in his letter to the Romans. He says God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So you've had a hint that lets you know "Ah, there's goodness coming. It's a real experience of a real thing. We haven't had the full experience of the real thing yet. The beginning of Act 5 is compared to a wedding feast and to the reunion of a father and a son. Maybe you've seen one of those videos where a kid whose dad has been away for a long time, like on military duty, comes back and surprises him, and they have this huge, tearful embrace. So the the revelation uses these powerful images from human relationships to say, our reunion with God is going to be like that, but even better. That ache, that longing we feel feel is going to be filled with his glorious presence. And that brings us to the third theme of the end of the story, the pressing question. Pressing question. Let's look at Revelation 21, verses 6 through 8. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I want to say up front that just as we have to kind of shake out mental images of heaven as this weird disembodied floaty harp thing, um, we also have to shake out some of these mental images of hell that have built up as well. You know, this is a very deeply symbolic book. We don't know what the actual reality is going to be like. So in Revelation, they use this image of a lake of fire. Jesus compared it to a valley that was used as this giant refuse dump that had once been used for child sacrifice. He also called it the outer darkness. And so behind those images, we don't know what the actual reality is, there are a few clear ideas. All goodness of the creation is gone. All hints of every good thing, every perfection is out of there. The light, the rain, the beauty, the human love, and the presence of God is gone from there as well. Those things fill the new heavens and the new earth. This is a place that's locked out of those. And outside of those is a place that no one wants to be. So all the glory, the hints of greatness, and even the the goodness that we have that prevents us from becoming versions of ourselves, uh, like we've seen exposed in recent years. We've seen people exposed as abusive, exploitative, manipulative, all the grace that holds us back from that is going to be gone. This is Act 5 for people who in this life chose to live by their fears, their anger, their lust, or their deception, or who built their life on the foundation of a created thing instead of the creator. That's what idolatry is. It's building your life on ambition or wealth or fame instead of on God himself. At the end of this chapter, God is going to say, that's your choice. You can have it. You can have what's left of it. So the pressing question is, what story is my life writing? Am I thirsty for the goodness of God so that I let him have creative control over my decisions? I'm drinking from his fountain and from none other. Or am I determined to be in charge so the story goes the way I think it should go in this life? Am I living for a good that, if I'm lucky, is going to last, at most, a few decades, if I'm lucky? Or am I living for the internal inheritance of my Heavenly Father? In a sermon titled The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, says this. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition When infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. The infinite joy that Lewis references, the heritage of Revelation 21 verse 7, is the perfection of the creation and the presence of God. The question for us is, do I want that enough to say no to the parts of me that want other goods? They want to go after other lovers, other fountains. We'll close with this. The language of conquering is meant to suggest that we're in a battle, which we are. The battle isn't political or economic or racial. It's the battle for who is the king of my soul and who's the king of your soul. Is it the one who's the king of heaven and earth or is it something else? Is it me? But that language can also make us feel like it's on us to win the fight that I'm going to see God's face by the strength of my will. And anyone who's tried to live the Christian life that way with a full understanding of their sin knows that that's impossible. It doesn't work. Revelation 21, verse 27, says that the people in this part of the story who inherit the goodness of Act 5 are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. In Revelation chapter 5, God has a or John has a vision of God holding a scroll sealed with seven seals. The scroll represents the end of the story. So it's the power to bring Act 4 to an end and to start Act 5. And it says that there's no one found on heaven or earth or under the earth who can open that scroll, who has the power to make that ending happen. And John begins weeping. But then someone stops him and they say, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And John looks and he writes, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, the lion of Judah. It's a lamb who was slain. And that lamb goes and he takes the scroll. And when he does, John says, Heaven sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The Lion of Judah conquered, but he did it as a lamb who was slain for the sin of the world. His death ransomed. That means it paid the price to liberate those of us who had sold ourselves to another by our sin, who had earned God's wrath by joining ourselves to some other good. And so he paid the cost for that. And he's like a husband who gives up everything to win back his bride, to bring us back to him. So when we say that we're reconciled to Christ by faith, we mean that we trust in his power, in his conquering strength, instead of our own. We live because of his victory. So the question isn't resolved by me having the personal strength to conquer my selfishness and to live for Christ. It's resolved by me repenting by me letting go of everything that I'm inclined to hang on to and trusting Christ with my life now and for eternity. That's going to change how I live. I'm going to live differently. Some things are going to be in my life that weren't before, and some things are going to be out that were in. But my hope is that my story is part of his story. It's trusting God to lead me through Act 4 to the perfection of the creation and the eternal presence of God in Act 5. Let's pray. God, we look forward to a hope that is more glorious than anything that we could imagine. We look forward to a perfected creation. We look forward to your eternal presence, to be with the one that we were made to be with forever, face to face. And so I pray for those of us here who have already trusted you with our lives. I pray that you would help us see when we try to go after other lesser things. Help us to repent of those and to hold fast to the hope that we have in you, in gratitude and in joy. And if there's anyone here who doesn't know this hope yet, I pray that they too would come to be part of this story, to join you through faith now and to belong to you. In eternity, in Act 5. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Won't you stand and continue Amen. worshiping with us?